And in the second verse there of chapter 7, we read that the ark remained in Kiriath Yaram a long time, 20 years. And at the close of the verse, we read that all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. All the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. And God willing, uh, today and uh, tomorrow night, I want to uh, consider this text with you, what it means to lament after the Lord. Uh, perhaps there may be some amongst ourselves who may be lamenting after the Lord, lamenting after his presence, as perhaps uh, you used to know and enjoy his presence. And in the prayer, too, that the Lord would come and grant it to you. He, of course, did that to Israel here, and we'll see that in the course of tomorrow, particularly. He, he came uh, through Samuel, and he blessed Israel again and helped them at the famous battle of Mizpah, which is recorded in chapter 7 here, a battle that was commemorated by a famous stone which Samuel put up, which he called Ebenezer. Uh, the stone of help, because, as he famously said, hitherto the Lord has helped us. And indeed, the Lord had come and helped them because they had lamented after the Lord. And if we too learn uh, to lament after the Lord, however long or short it may take, he will visit us, and he'll revisit us with this gracious presence. And it's always important in looking at texts like this to remember that they are true and applicable as far as the church corporate is concerned and also as far as the individual Christian is concerned. It's true of the church corporate generally. It's true of a congregation. It is true of a Christian. In other words, to put it simply, a church can lament after the Lord. A congregation may lament after the Lord. And a Christian, man or woman, may lament after the Lord, and the Lord in his grace return. So let's look then more fully at the text. Now the reason, of course, the Lord is lamented is because he has removed his presence from them. He removed his presence. Now, technically you could say that he had returned 20 years previously, uh, because we saw how the ark came back into the borders of Israel, into the village of Beth Shemesh, and how the men of Kiriath Yaram took it and deposited it on a hill in the house of a man called Abinadab to be looked after by his son Eliezer for 20 years. So for the last 20 years, the Lord had been somehow present, but nonetheless, he was as good as absent. And that is why even after the 20 years are past, Israel are still lamenting after the Lord. Now all these things uh, need to be unraveled a bit and understood a bit better. And really to get a hold of what's happening here and to understand it, we need to go back these 20 years. In fact, we need to go back 20 years and seven months to when the ark was first of all taken captive. 
Now, most of you will be familiar with those events that are in the earlier chapters of 1 Samuel. Israel was in declension. The priesthood was in declension. Especially Eli's sons were abusing their office in a, in a fearful way. And when they discovered that the Philistines, the world and the culture of the world, was gaining the ascendancy over them, they decided to take the ark into battle, not because God had told them to, but because they thought it was a good idea. And uh, when Christians have good ideas sometimes, and they're on a path of declension, it's always a time to watch out when they have initiatives that don't have God in them. It sounded a good idea to take the ark into battle, but God had not told them to do so. They were using it as a kind of talismanic type of thing, like a kind of a rabbit's foot or a lucky charm. You don't use the things of God like that. Uh, the result was that God allowed the Philistines to take the ark captive. Uh, they lost it. And they could hardly believe that that was so. The ark of the covenant, which had been made for them around Mount Sinai so long ago, was now taken captive for the first time into the hands of the world. And God allowed that because God was speaking through that. It symbolized the fact that God was removing his own blessing from the church. And that's a very serious thing when that happens. Eli's daughter-in-law, she had the misfortune to be married to a, a, a wicked uh, priest, but when she was dying and she heard that the ark was taken, um, she called the name of her child Ichabod, which meant the glory has departed. And she tied that event, the, the glory of God departing with the capture of the ark. And she knew that this meant desolation for the people of God because it's a terrible thing to be living without God's presence. And that is what happened. The worldly Philistine culture then gained the ascendancy over God's people and took away their liberties and began to persecute them. And the sad fact is that uh, whenever they went into the sanctuary to worship, the presence of God was really just not there. I, I wonder myself who could discern that in the worship. That's a question worth asking. Uh, I don't know who, who, could, who could have answered that question. Is God here or not? I mean, I, I've said this to you before that I'm so familiar with hearing people say in prayers, we thank you that you're here today. We thank you that you're always here. And I wonder, you know, do they wonder? Are they sure he's here? Is he really there? What kind of tokens are people looking for when they think God is present? Well, the fact is that God had removed himself from the sanctuary. Isn't that a solemn thought? Removed himself from the sanctuary. Now, it didn't mean that he had removed himself from the people of God forever, from the people of Israel forever. Of course not. But nonetheless, he had removed himself from the sanctuary. Now, before he returns, he will be away for seven months. Before he returns, they must rediscover God's holiness and they must relearn to respect that holiness. 
And although God is only seven months technically absent from the land, he will be 20 years and seven months before they really rediscover and learn what God's presence involves, what it means. God doesn't just come back on anyone's terms. He doesn't just come back because you want him to come back. He comes back only in a certain way and on certain conditions. Israel needed reminding of that. We need reminding of it too. One of the great tragedies in uh, modern contemporary church life is that people think they can manipulate God in pretty much the way that you could manipulate the genie inside the lamp, that God is there to do your bidding, whatever that bidding may be, and to grant you that request, whatever that request may be. God is not to be manipulated, not by any stretch of the imagination. And that's the lesson that he wants to teach the church right away on his return. Now, for seven months, the ark has gone from city to city uh, amongst the Philistines and devastated these cities and devastated their gods too, reducing Dagon at one point to falling down on his face before the ark in the Philistine temple. Um, that's just God's way of showing his holiness to the world. Sad to say, the church, Israel, should have been showing God's holiness to the world, but she wasn't. But friends, God can speak for himself. And although it's important for the church to speak for God, if the church somehow fails, God is still not short of ways in which to speak to people. He can speak to you to all, through all kinds of events, through all kinds of things that happen in your life. And I'm sure many of you know that and have known it in the past. And God just did that amongst the Philistines. Uh, the reason I'm saying that Israel didn't do it is just because they were living in declension. And because of that declension, the Philistines were able to look at them as weak and easy to take over. And lo and behold, they did take them over. Similar things happen today. It happened before then too, when Israel in Jacob's day, even when Israel was that small numerically, when they were strong and faithful, were told that the fear of Jacob and his family fell on the surrounding peoples who exceeded them numerically. But there was a holy fear in them because when the people of God are close to God, there is something emanating from them that the world can't help but recognize. A sense of sanctity, a sense of separation. It's almost, even though they don't want to say so or to acknowledge it, they recognize that there is something about them. But we're told when the people of God, even in Jacob's day, fell away from God, that the nations became hostile towards them and started to be aggressive towards them. Now, the same has always been the case. If we see the world rising against us in our own nation here as a church, it is fundamentally because the church is weak. It is not because the world is strong. The world is the world. The world will always be the world. But it's when the church chooses to renounce God or to drift away from God, that's when she becomes weak and that's when the church begins to infiltrate and then to take over. Sorry, the world begins to infiltrate and then to take over. 
But if the Philistines thought they could handle God as easily as they could handle the church, they were in for a, a rude awakening. Like I said, God can speak for himself. And we're thankful that he does so. And he, he brought the Philistines in these seven months to a position where they said, get rid of the ark, just put it back, it's not worth it. And so they did that. They used their own ingenuity, they devised their own way to carry the ark. Um, they actually, in spite of all God had done for seven months amongst them, they still needed to test whether it was really God who was speaking to them or not. They said, let's put two milk cows uh, leading the, the cart and we'll keep their calves separate. In other words, they were making it as hard for the cows uh, to go towards the destination as possible. And they said, if they go into Israel, we know that it is God that has spoken to us. Does it take that to know that all the disasters of the previous seven months in every place where the ark was situated was actually due to God? Uh, but that's the way people are. I mean, I'm sometimes staggered myself at the series of events that can come into a person's life and they are so obviously God speaking and they say after that, well, maybe if this happened or if that happened, enough has happened and God has said and done enough. But you're like the Philistine saying, well, yes, but let's put this test there. Well, <laughs> that test was passed too because the cows made their way to Israel. Now, there's a lot to be said about all that. I mean, there really is about the way in which God reveals himself to the world. But our focus tonight is on the way that he comes back to the church. Uh, he's visiting the world, but he, he wants to come back into the church to dwell there on his terms, and on his conditions. And that's why he returns in a way that brings his holiness vividly before them. And sad to say, the way the, the events unfold make it perfectly plain that he needed uh, to bring lessons home to them in connection with his holiness. It shows us that the people have forgotten his holiness because they've become fundamentally irreverent and they have become ignorant. And ignorance and irreverence always go together. And that's why we're led to this village of Beth Shemesh, where the people are reaping, gathering in the wheat harvest. In some respects, it's quite remarkable that the wheat harvest is still there to be reaped. I mean, it's a sign that uh, however angry the Lord is at this point, he still leaves so much of his mercy and of his kindness. And however the Lord shows his anger on the world or his chastisement upon the church, there are always marks of kindness if we look for them. There's still here a harvest to be reaped. Now in the distance, they're reaping in the valley. On the hills, they see a cart coming towards them um, with the ark and a golden chest on it. It's more than likely that they recognised the ark by its distinctive coverings. The ark was to be covered by certain coverings and in a strange kind of way the Philistines were careful enough in their own handling of the ark and they wouldn't have disrespected its coverings in that respect. Now when they saw the ark coming, their first response was joy. And we can understand that. Now Beth Shemesh was a priestly city. You'll remember that uh, the tribe of Levi had no inheritance. Uh, they weren't to have land as the other tribes. 
They were to be scattered as a, as, as a people, as a teaching ministry. They were to be scattered throughout the whole land. But certain cities were allocated to them to dwell in. Beth Shemesh was one of these. And we're told that the Levites in the village took the ark down. Now, so far, that is a good thing to do. And there was great joy and rejoicing. But you know, if your joy is really spiritual, it'll be intelligent. If your joy is really spiritual, it will be biblical. It will be grounded in the truth. It will be respectful of God and respectful of his commandments. Uninhibited expressions of joy that have no care for what God has said or for God requires is not something that God wants or is interested in. As Psalm 2 reminds us, we are to rejoice with trembling. See that you join trembling with your mirth. And our joy in the presence of God needs to be reverent, therefore respectful of his commandments, of his dignity, who he is, what he is like, what he requires. Now, either the men of Beth Shemesh removed the coverings of the ark, or worse than that, they moved the lid to see inside the ark. The Hebrew, I don't think, is actually clear. It could be either, and either is a sin. The, the ark was actually never visible to the ordinary Israelite. Um, in fact, it wasn't even visible to the Levites. The only people who saw the ark were the priests, and they had the duty of covering the ark every time it was to be moved. Now, the Levites were responsible for carrying it, but they never saw it. It was always covered and uncovered by the priests. So either they removed the coverings, or worse still, they looked into the ark. Like I said, the Hebrew may be saying that they gazed at the ark directly, or that they, worse still, like I said, moved the lid and looked into it. Now that is a sign, fundamentally, of over-familiarity and irreverence. It is the result of years of poor teaching, and just as bad as poor teaching, it's the power of a lax example. Uh, God so often rebukes both the priests and the prophets, but particularly the priests. The priests whose lips should keep knowledge had degraded themselves and found different ways in which to manipulate their positions of power for their own interest. Amazingly, we're told that Eli's two sons were actually in the practice of lying with women who were in the vicinity of the tabernacle during the times of feasts and festivals. It's astonishing. But that, that is the example that was being given by the priesthood at the time. So this lax example, plus the poverty of the teaching, meant that this is what they do when they see the Ark of the Covenant. Now, this kind of irreverence and over-familiarity with God is an absolute blight on our land and a blight on our churches. And, you know, I don't mean to stereotype a people or anything like that, but there's, there's no doubt that there's a strong American influence in this kind of approach to God. 
certainly amongst pastors over there and evangelists who seem to have this extraordinary glib and flippant way of speaking about God. And they can't seem to speak for two or three minutes without getting the assurance of a laugh from the congregation, which makes them feel themselves popular, or whatever it is, I'm not sure. All I know is that it's not good. It doesn't produce strong Christians. It doesn't produce Christians who are really impressed with the holiness, the grandeur, the majesty, and the sovereignty of God. The holiness of God, it doesn't produce that. It produces people in the pew who are like that. Uh, People who themselves speak in a very careless, flippant way about God. It's not good. And the interesting thing is that it spreads and it begins to characterize a people and to characterize a church. Of course, it encourages the trivialization of the worship of God. A lot of things on the so-called God channels, the religious channels on TV, are simply unwatchable. If you have any sense of the glory of God, they are simply unwatchable. And the Sad things, as far as I'm concerned, is the the sheer crowds that are looking on and involving themselves in it. It's hard to believe, but that's the way things go. God is simply not feared anymore, and many of the people who say that they are following God say that God is not really to be feared anymore. Whereas God says, Even when he introduces himself as a father, he says, if I am your father, where is my reverence? Now, I want you to notice God's response to what the men of Beth Shemesh do. There's a way, of course, in which God was bearing with the declension of his people for some length of time. Um, What God bears with sometimes is not what he approves of. You, you often find people saying, well, we've done this and, you know, no harm has come upon us. Uh, and so, does that mean that God approves? In Psalm 50, famously, God said to the people that you did this and I was silent, God says, and you thought that I was altogether like yourselves. And God says, but I will reprove you. And I will set your sins in order before you, and you will give your account. I was silent, and you thought, therefore, that I was just like you. We shouldn't misinterpret the long-suffering of God. Don't misinterpret it. As though God approves of what he doesn't smite immediately. How long did God bear with Sodom and Gomorrah? before his hand came down in judgment on these cities. A long, long time. There are many things God bears with. But here he rises up, and he has a reason to rise up. And that's because they have rejected his presence, and in his grace he's returning. So like I said, he's making the terms plain. Are you going to ascend into the holy hill of worship? Are you going to have communion with me? Are you going to have fellowship with me? Well, know who I am. And there is a vast number of the dead in Beth Shemesh. A vast number of the dead because of their irreverence and their carelessness in connection with the things of God. God left them in judgment and he's returning in judgment. 
Isn't it an interesting thing that God announces his return by an act of judgment? By an act that produces fear on the people. I've several times um, had reason to look into times of revival in, in Scotland. Um, over the last, say, 150, maybe even more years. And I was always struck by the fact that the times of genuine revival, take for example 1859, which was the last national revival. By national, I mean from Orkney in the north to Dumfries in the south, Campbellton in the west, right through to Dundee in the east. Revivals like that were always preceded by a seriousness that came upon people. And spontaneous gatherings for prayer where sometimes little was said because the people were just gripped by a holy awe uh, and a sense of God's presence. How, how unlike that is to a lot of what is supposed to pass for the presence of God now, where there is little awe and little fear. But he announces his return to the church by bringing fear upon the people. Now, I've, I've said it before, but without reverence, we're nothing. Reverence and humility are the primary, the most primitive religious motions that you can have. Without them, we have nothing else. Every other emotion is built on these. Reverence and humility are the soul's first response before the greatness of God, before anything else kicks in. And let's take that with us to the table of the Lord. Yes, friends, the table of the Lord is where he comes down and meets with us. In his great grace and in his own great humility, he comes down and he meets with us. But let us remember that he meets us always in a sanctuary. And that holiness always becomes the house of God. Psalm 93 and the last verse. And let us remember that when we ascend the holy hill to have communion on the Lord's day. Now, when God um, breaks out in this way with the death um, amongst the children of Israel, the first effect of that was to bring them to lament. It brought them to lamentation. Uh, at verse 19 in chapter 6, we read, at the end of the verse, we read that the people lamented because the Lord had struck the people with a great slaughter. Now, you'll notice that there's a kind of um, vocabulary connection between that verse and our own text in chapter 7, verse 2. At the end of verse 2, the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. These are two different kinds of lamentation. They're very, very different. We'll see how a little later on. But for the moment, in chapter 6 and verse 19, we're told that when God struck the people dead, the people lamented because the Lord had struck them. Now, we don't know what kind of emotions went along with that lamentation. Uh, to highlight that, let me refer to an incident that's similar to this. It's very, very similar. A good number of years afterwards, when David uh, was going to build the ark, the first thing he wanted to do was to take the ark from its place here on a hill in Kiriath Yarim and uh, transport it to Jerusalem. You remember how that was done? Uh, with great joy and with great gladness. 
and with carelessness. The ark was not transported the way that God wanted it transported. The Levites weren't carrying it on poles. It was actually placed on an ark, on a cart, sorry, incidentally, the way the Philistines did it. You'll notice that. Notice the tendency for the church always to move towards what the world does all the time, thinking that providing we're all happy, the ark is going in the right place, God's happy. Well, God's happy when he says he's happy. And it's on his terms always. But you'll remember that the oxen stumbled, uh, the cart itself appeared to be toppling. A man called Uzzah stretched out his hand to stop the ark falling, and God struck Uzzah dead there and then. The singing stopped, the celebration stopped, the procession stopped, and we're told that David was angry. He was angry. And the reason he was angry was because he felt Uzzah had been hard done by. Maybe you can identify with that in the way that you feel instinctively about the passage. Maybe we all do, you know, until we understand it properly. He, he actually called the place Peretzusa, which means a breach on Uzzah, because he felt that, that there was a breach there, that something had gone wrong. Uzzah ought not to have been killed. And we're told that David went home for three months. And in that three-month period, David changed his attitude completely. He read the scriptures, he prayed, and he humbled himself, and he realized it was mostly his own fault. That he had not overseen it as it ought to have been overseen. They, they, he had put the cart, meantime, into the house of another godly man, a man called Obedidom. And during that three-month period, like I said, David reflected, and he prayed, and he thought, and when he came back, everything was done differently. There was still joy and gladness, but this time the Levites were carrying the ark, it was transported the way God wanted it transported, and their joy was accompanied with reverence and with godly fear. So the initial lamentation here too may have had anger, questions, confusion. It's like, what's the result of all this death? Is this God coming back? If this is, com if this is God coming back into the church, maybe we were better off with God not here. God's presence can be a dangerous thing. But the deeper effect comes out in two questions that the men of Beth Shemesh ask. And if you go to verse 20 in chapter 6, you, you'll hear these two questions. And let me say right away that one of the questions is good and one of them is not so good. In verse 20, we're told that the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before this holy Lord God? And then the second question, And to whom shall it, that is the ark, go up from us? Where, where will it go? Where will we put it? So who is able to stand before this holy Lord God? And to whom shall it go from us. Who's able to stand before him? Good question. We all need to ask that. We're ascending a place of worship. We're going to a place of communion. 
we all need to ask who can stand. If it was spiritual complacency and a false sense of entitlement and a false sense of worthiness that led to God departing in the first place, then his return has to bring a sense of unworthiness and undeservedness. And, and that's a good thing. That's a good thing. Wouldn't, be, wouldn't it be good if that was our spirit going up to the Lord's table? Not a sense of, well, here I am and this is who I am and I've been doing this for years. But a sense of who am I to be doing this again? Who was I to do it at first and, and who am I to do it now? A sense of unworthiness and undeservedness. It's a good spirit to have at the Lord's table. You know, so many people say, I, I am not worthy to sit at the Lord's table. Where, Well, therein lies your worthiness. Therein lies your worthiness, or at least a part of your worthiness. The very sense that you have of being unworthy to be in the presence of a holy God is not a disqualification, but a qualification, or part of a qualification for the Lord's table. I am thankful, looking at myself, that I feel that in great measure. Who am I to sit at that table? And that is the emotion that the Lord is bringing into the heart of the men of Beth Shemesh. Who is able to stand before this God? Now you'll notice this pattern in scripture all the time. And we read a couple of examples of it in Isaiah 33. In the passage we read, God says that he will rise and lift himself up in Zion. And the sense of fear comes upon the people. Who will dwell with the everlasting burnings and who can dwell with a consuming fire? But then, of course, he, he answers the question. There is such a people. There are humble people, all right. And their righteousness is not of themselves, but it's real and genuine. God has worked it into them. Um, when he asks the question, who can dwell with the devouring fire, it says the one who walks righteously, speaks uprightly. He despises gain through robbery. He doesn't take bribery, stops his ears from hearing bloodshed. He shuts his eyes from evil. He will dwell on high and his eyes will see the king in his beauty. He'll see the holiness of the king because he's concerned with holiness himself. Uh, the, 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 without holiness, no man can see the Lord. The Bible tells us that. Without holiness, without faith, it is impossible to please him. Without holiness, you'll never see him. Always take these two together. And let me say to you in connection with them that what God has joined together, let not man put asunder. Without faith, you'll never please him. Without holiness, you'll never see him. Justification, sanctification are both there intertwined forever in the life of a Christian. So who will dwell with everlasting burnings? We need to know that that's who God is. The psalmist asked a similar question. Who shall ascend into the hill of God? The answer, those whose hands are clean and whose heart is pure. You say, well, my hands are unclean and my heart isn't pure. But blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. There is a purity that is true of your heart. There is a cleanliness that is true of your hands. We all know that the only one with spotless hands and a spotless heart is the man who's got us in there. 
But that doesn't mean that your hands aren't clean and that your heart isn't pure. Every time we come to the sanctuary, we are like the priests going into the holy place. They wash themselves in the brazen laver. They've had their bath already, but every time they come into the presence of God, they wash themselves. It's a repentant spirit. I'm coming in here with clean hands and with a pure heart. That, that's how we go to the table of the Lord too. Between now and the Lord's day, perhaps even as you're coming into that sanctuary, you're washing yourself. You're saying, well, Lord, receive me. Lord, cleanse me. Lord, accept me. Sprinkle the blood upon me. Sanctify me by your Holy Spirit and enable me to sit here in humility giving thanks to the God who has condescended to come and to meet with me. In other words, just like the Israelites long ago before their Passover, you purge out the leaven. Purge it out by repentance and by faith so that you sit there with clean hands and with a pure heart. So like I said, a large part of your worthiness is your sense of unworthiness. So God is saying, if I return to you, it's on my terms and with the approach that I require. Now, I said earlier that the presence of God is a dangerous thing. What, what I mean by that is that God cares about his people when, when they're carrying his own name. He's jealous for his own glory. He's jealous for his church. He's jealous for his people. And the price that we need to pay for God's presence is the willingness to be examining ourselves, to be denying ourselves, and to be consecrating ourselves regularly to God. When we live like that, we don't grieve the Holy Spirit, and we don't quench him. And whatever infirmities attach to us from day to day, and they're there, we purge them by daily repentance and faith. Sometimes there's an accumulation of something that needs to be cleansed out properly, and communion time is a great time to do that. If for some reason some sloth has accumulated, some practice or some habit that you've not properly purged out, well, let it be purged out even between now and the Lord's day. But that's the price for having God's presence with you. Self-examination, self-denial, consecration. But if that's the price you pay for his presence, the reward is well worth it. What is the reward? Well, a sense of divine presence in worship, for example. A loving and living fellowship amongst the Lord's people, for example. A sense of expectation in your life generally by faith. A sense of expectation in the church. A sense of expectation regarding who may be there and who may come to life. All these things are so worth having. And along with that, an impression on the world's part that there's something about them, something about us that the Lord is there in their midst. I referred recently to the man in Corinth. Paul said, if someone comes in and everything is in order, they will fall on their face and say, the Lord's with you. They'll be constrained to say that there is something here that's real and deep and spiritual. So that's a good question. Who is able 
to stand before such a holy God. But like I said, the next question is not so good. Again in verse 20. To whom shall it, the ark, go up from us? They want rid of it. They want rid of it. It's strange that a city of priests can't handle the Lord's presence, is it not? The very place that you would expect to be able to handle the presence of the ark is the place that can't handle it. The people in the church that you would expect to be able to deal with the nearness and the holiness of God is the people that don't want to know. In a way, it's not unlike the world, the Philistines. They couldn't cope with God's presence. They would far rather be without it. Amazingly, the priests are reasoning the same way. Now, you see this kind of effect produced by the holiness of God elsewhere in the Bible. You'll remember when Christ came to the country of the Gadarenes and he healed Legion, the man who was possessed by so many evil spirits. And these evil spirits went into the pigs, who, of course, ran down the hill and uh, were drowned in the sea. We're told that when the residents of, uh, of Gadara came uh, and saw the Lord and, and saw Legion, and when they saw what had happened to the pigs, they said to Christ, Leave. Get out of our country. And uh, Christ, of course, did do that, because that's exactly what God sometimes does when you tell him to go solemnly. He goes. I think the main, the main reason that they sent him away was not because Legion was healed, but because they lost their pigs, which was the source of revenue for them. Um, pork was not something they were supposed to be cultivating, for um, rearing for people to eat, but it was a, a lucrative earner, and they didn't want to lose their money. So they preferred their money and their illicit jobs to the presence of Christ. And that spirit hasn't died away. That spirit hasn't died away. Not at all. There are other examples of it too. When the Pharisees were going to stone the woman who committed adultery, uh, Christ, of course, spoke to them in a way that convicted them. And instead of saying to the Lord Jesus Christ that he was right and what should we do, we're told that they walked away one by one. They left the scene. They walked away from God when they should have walked towards him. And of course, walking away from God is the same as asking God to leave you alone, is it not? And like I say, sometimes he does that. But like I said, the amazing thing is that this is a village of priests. And the village that they actually sent the ark to was not a village of priests, Kiriath Yaram, but it must have had a reputation for being God-fearing. It must have had that. They must have thought something of this man Abinadab uh, on the hill and his son Eliezer. Now, we're not told that they were Levites, although it is a fact that when the, um, the descendants of Levitical families are recorded in the Bible. The names Abinadab and Eliezer appear very often as though they are common Levitical names, which may be an indication that they were Levites living in that city of Kiriath Yarm. But whether they were or not, they were obviously people held in high esteem as being close to the Lord. 
See, sometimes back, backslidden Christians know when Christians are really close to the Lord. Strange that. When the push comes to the shove, they know deep down who is close to the Lord and who isn't. They get a false sense of security from people who choose to live lax like themselves. But when the push comes to the shove, they recognize who's different. So here they are in this priestly city, sending the ark to a man who lives with his son on the hill close to the Lord. But isn't it sad that those who are supposed to lead the people are the ones who can't cope with the holiness of God? I sometimes am surprised at people who decide to opt for a casual approach to God after many years of approaching him in another way. They decide, you feel it's just like a decision to go with the flow. And they cast off the kind of approach that they used to have to God and they start to lead the people in a far more easy and casual manner. Just like that. And here's Beth Shemesh behaving like the Philistines. The priests who were supposed to lead are the ones, they're probably the ones who dragged the church down, to be quite honest. And they'll hardly be the ones to drag the church back up. But they sat this man Eliezer apart just to guard the ark of God. And the years passed for the nation. Twenty years. That, not may, be a, that may not be a long time in an individual's life or in a congregation's life or in a church's life but the fact of the matter is that this return on God's part is effectively postponed that's what's happening the ark which should have made its way to the center of national life is is left on a hill because somehow the church doesn't want God back on God's terms thought it did but it didn't not when it knew what these terms really were. But gradually, as the 20 years pass, things begin to change. And they begin to lament the Lord's absence. Now the question arises, why? In what sense are they now lamenting the Lord's absence? Well, friends, I think the answer to this lies in the ministry of Samuel. It's an interesting thing that when everything is falling apart, God is busy behind the scenes building them up. We don't know it. Sometimes we can't see it, but all we see is the existing mess, but somewhere God is sorting it out. And the fact is when when the people of God were sliding into the depths with the ministry of Eli's sons, there was a little boy in the temple who was growing up to become a man. And, of course, he was born in prayer uh, by a godly mother who was herself a representative of the praying remnant of God's people. And, and they're always there. They're, they're always there. And it's because of the remnant that the whole thing is preserved. And it's because of the remnant, well, or shall I say, it's through the remnant that the whole thing comes back to life. God never bypasses the remnant. He always works through the remnant. 
And through the prayers and the vows of that remnant represented by Hannah, this child is born and this child grows. The last thing that we hear about him before we read of this sorry episode with the war and the ark being taken captive, all that we read is that Samuel gave his first prophecy to, uh, to Eli because God had spoken to him directly. We're told that Samuel grew and the Lord was with him and he let none of his words fall to the ground. So there was just something about how he spoke. And all Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel had been established as a prophet of the Lord. Now here we go again, you see. Because we're talking here about a lot of people who were not in a great condition. But they still couldn't help but recognize the work of the Lord when it was really there. They knew Samuel had been established as a prophet. And the Lord appeared to Samuel in Shiloh by his own word. By his own word. And now, interestingly, at the end of this 20-year period, all the people begin to lament. Different lamentation. The first time they lamented was because they were suffering God's anger. This time, it's because they're aware of what it's like to be without God. It's better to have an angry God dealing with you than to have no God at all, or no sense, or no consciousness of God. This time, their lamentation is not because God has afflicted them, but because they know that they've driven God away. And the reason that God is still not fully in their midst is because they haven't been reconciled to accepting him on his terms. It's as though God has been standing on a hill, as it were, there, knocking in Kiriath Yaram for 20 years at their door, and they are not letting him in. This lamentation is a, is a precious thing. It happens when God makes his absence felt. And he usually does that by taking away again from you the idols that have come into your life. That's what he did when you became a Christian first. He knocked down your idols. But you weren't careful about the idols. And they came back. But God knocks them away again. Uh, and, and you start to feel that you need God again. And you start to desire and to long for that presence. That's what lamentation means. That you are longing again for the presence of God. And he finds ways of awakening your memory. Of what it was like to rejoice in the Lord. And to have his presence. Maybe just as you read something. Or as you hear something. Perhaps even in the house of God. Just like we thought some time ago in the Song of Solomon. When the church was lying slothfully in her bed. And her beloved came and put his hand through the latch of the door. And she didn't stir. She couldn't be bothered stirring. But he left a little bundle of myrrh. And the fragrance reaches her. And she can't get up quick enough. Something like that. Something like that. He doesn't just make his absence felt. But he makes his presence something to be desired. The positive as well as the negative, like the church in Hosea, when God said that she went after her lovers and she forgot me. She decked herself, she adorned herself, and she went after her lovers and she forgot me. 
But God says, I will allure her into the wilderness and I will speak to her heart. In the wilderness, he speaks to your heart. The result, she will sing as she sang in the days of her youth when she came out of Egypt. Isn't that a beautiful thing? And as well as that, God creates a hatred for the things that drove him away in the first place. You know, once you realize what the things were that consumed your time and your energy, you want to get shot of them. These little foxes that spoiled the vines. Sometimes it was the sheer accumulation of them that you don't have much time for them anymore. As William Cooper said, return, O holy dove, return, sweet messenger of rest. I hate the sins that made you mourn and drove you from my breast. It's good to feel these things in going to the Lord's table. Where that lamentation led, we'll see tomorrow. May the Lord bless our meditation on his word. Let us pray. O Lord, we are conscious in all these things of how intricate the soul is, how delicate a thing the soul that you have created, with what care it needs to be handled, and how unable we are to handle our own or to handle anyone else's. But it is a wonderful thing that the power which took the stars into being is able to pierce to the dividing asunder of the soul and spirit and enter into the very thoughts and intentions of the heart. And how skilled you are in bringing us to places of repentance and longing and lamentation where we mourn over ourselves and we desire the Lord. And we pray if even our own uncleanness has been uncovered that we would come to the one who covers it, and that our hunger and thirst for him would be stimulated, and that we would look forward to his banqueting house, where his banner over us is love. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> our closing uh, psalm is Psalm 80, at verse 15. Psalm 80. Verse 15. There's a prayer in verse 14 that God would return and revisit his vine. This vineyard, verse 15, which thine own right hand has planted us among. And that same branch which for thyself thou hast made to be strong. The vineyard, the vine, looks to be destroyed. But in verse 17, let thy hand be still upon the man, capital M, of thy right hand, the son of man whom for thyself thou madest strong to stand. So henceforth we will not go back, nor turn from thee at all. O do thou quicken us, and we upon thy name We'll call, I think we'll, we'll just sing the last three stanzas of the psalm, 17 to 19, and we'll stand to sing to God's praise.
of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.